for us. This isn't all about us. This is about those that haven't heard. Those are for, this is for the almost Christians. This is for the people that haven't quite believed yet. This is for people that may not even have heard such a thing. So when you get too comfortable thinking this is all about us, then you're getting too comfortable. And it's not healthy. Healthy churches are those where the pastors are encouraged to lead and to make decisions, actually make decisions based on the vision that God has given to them. I'm going to tell you that's very different uh, than being in some of these dying churches because in those churches, all decisions are made by boards and committees. We've never had that at Faith Community Fellowship. That's why we're a thriving church. I mean, the, I mean, the important, really, really important things are decided in committees in those churches, like the color of the walls, the pattern in the carpet, the size of the light bulbs, and on and on and on. There's a list of really important things. The healthy, thriving, growing churches don't get caught up in those kind of things. The healthy church values innovation uh, over tradition. Now, dying churches are actually that way because they're always seeking ways to preserve what's already been established, and so they're rooted in their tradition. What that means is they refuse to even mention the word change, period. The healthy church has a bias to action. That means getting things done. Less talk, more about doing something about their opportunities. And then healthy churches celebrate well, and they have faith in what God can do through their ministry. People are excited in that kind of a church. People don't want to miss what God's doing. People like to smile in that church. People like to smile in that church. Amen. Yeah. People like to offer hugs. How many of you got a hug this morning on the way in? Because if you didn't, don't have your hand up right now, we've got a hug for you on the way out, Okay. And you get a warm welcome, and that's why I'm so glad to be here today, because it makes everybody's job easier when you have happy people and people that are aware they're in a healthy environment. And I know it's January. I understand that this is the fourth Sunday in January. I even know that, and there's still another one to go. Do you know that more personal counseling is done in this month of the year than in any other of the other 11 months? December is a close second. Why is that? Well, like somebody wrote recently, January is the worst month. You're fat. The the resolutions have faded. You're broke from Christmas or from last year's Christmas. It's cold. It's dark nearly all the time. You are paler than ever. And life is such a struggle. After more than four decades of giving counsel to precious men and women, here's some things I've learned. I want want to share with you some things that I've learned. Most of these counseling people, helping people, instructing people, listening in the counseling room, whatever it might be. First, people have allowed me into their deepest, darkest corners of their lives, and they want help. Why do they want help? Because of guilt, because of lost hope, because of betrayal, because they feel worthless, because they don't like who they've become, because they have doubts, because they're feeling disconnected, and I mean disconnected from everyone, including God. You know, the truth is this, I found out. Many people believe it's a strength to conceal weakness. Something else I found out is we're all creatures of habit. Something else I've learned, faith acts like a spiritual muscle. It is easier for some people to deny God than to deny desire. I've also learned that most of us bear scars from failure, disappointments, and fear in our lives. Carnal habits, listen carefully, and raw addictions have little to do with fleshly appetites and everything to do with escape. And escape is never overcome by isolation. See, after... If you do this long enough, you learn some things. We feel like dismal failures whenever we make mistakes. The truth is, we all make mistakes. Okay. Forgiveness, is I've learned this, is the greatest gift we can offer somebody and can offer ourselves. See, forgiving you is my gift to you. But moving on is my gift to myself. Many people know about Jesus. They know about him. They've heard of him. 
but more people should strive to just plain know him. Something else I've learned is that the strongest among us are those with the cleanest mirrors. There's more sadness in this world than most people realize. There's more brokenness than most people have ever encountered. Those who are focused on serving others have less time to just count their problems. You focus on other people and your problems will start to minimize. Those who've made more mistakes have a greater gift to pass on. It's called empathy. It's that, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Let me tell you why you don't want to go down that road. You see, every action we take carries with it a consequence, either positive or negative. Oh, consequences. That is the title of my part one message. Oh, consequences. Hey, one day a mother explained to her five-year-old daughter that if she chose to disobey her, she'd have to live with the consequences. Oh, mommy, the little girl said with a terrified look on her face, please don't make me live with the consequences. I want to live here with you and daddy. <laughs> well, unbeknownst to that little girl, we all live with some consequences. We all live with the consequences, don't we? Say that word with me. Consequences. Mm. It's a word that seems to be fast leaving our vocabulary, and it's one we ought to pull back, I think. We live with the consequences of the choices we've made. We live with the consequences... Don't look at your spouse. (laughs) Keep this clean, okay? We live with the consequences of the decisions we've made. Sometimes we even live with the consequences of other people's actions because for the most part, something else I've learned in 40-some years there is that usually to start off, it's somebody else's fault. (laughs) But that actually does happen sometimes. Someone else does something and I'm left to deal with the repercussions. And many times, those consequences are not what we would want them to be. Hey, let's talk about consequences. Listen, as a young mother writes this, She said, my four-year-old son, Zachary, came out of the bathroom to tell me he dropped his toothbrush in the toilet. So I fished it out and put it in the garbage. And Zach just stood there watching me. And then he ran off to my bathroom and returned with my toothbrush. And he held it up and said with a charming little smile, we better throw this one away too because it fell in the toilet a few days ago. So later that day at the dinner table, that mom had just opened a new bottle of ketchup. And how many know that there's a vacuum there when you open a new bottle of ketchup and you have to do some work to get that great commodity? How many of you are aware of that? All right, yeah. And, and so she's got the new container of ketchup trying to get it started. And you know how you do that thing, the, the tapping on the bottom and the tapping got a little bit more vigorous and the phone rings in the middle of it. And she says, Zach, would you just run and, ke- and answer that phone and tell him mommy's busy and take a message? So he did, and he came back a few minutes later, and she said, who was it? And he said, oh, only the pastor. Well, what did you tell him, son? I, I, I told him you couldn't come and talk on the phone right now because you were hitting the bottle. Mmm. <laughs> mmm. So... Whether through your own choices, poor choices that we make, or through no fault of our own, we all live with the consequences. And listen, nobody escapes the fierce tide of failure. Nobody escapes the attacks of adversity or the discouragement that comes from debilitating dilemmas in life. All of us face trials. All of us face challenges. And if you haven't, they're coming. Hold on. And often we find ourselves pressed beneath the weight of the severity of the situation we're in, whether it be of our making or someone else's, doesn't really matter. If you've ever felt loneliness, if you've ever felt disappointment, if you've ever felt a sense of personal failure, 
because of poor choices you've made. And you know more than anything else that you need the intervention of God in your life because only God could straighten this out. And because you are powerless to make it different on your own, this Psalm 3 that I've selected for you today is particularly and personally and absolutely and directly for you. It was written for you. That is exactly where we find King David, the great, I call him the glorious king of Israel, in this Holy Spirit-inspired poem. Now, what I'm going to ask us to do today, I haven't done this for a while, I'm going to ask us to read this psalm together, and I'm reading from the Living Bible, so if you have, it's just an easy read, and if you have your Bible with you and you can get to the TLB, fine. If you can't, it's on the screen, so let's read together. Everybody join me. It would be really good because this is for every last person in the room. And David starts off by saying, Oh Lord, come with me. So many are against me. So many seek to harm me. I have so many enemies. Oh, that's good reading. And let's just, let's just, yeah. So many say that God will never help me. Lord, I just want to interject here. We've got five more verses to go. You're doing a wonderful job. No, you are. I just want to stop and say, remember that third verse. Remember that third verse. You alone can lift my head, now bowed in shame. Verse 4. I cried out to the Lord. He heard me. Cried out to the Lord, and what did he do? Mm, mm. Next verse. Just keep it rolling. Then I lay down, slept in peace, woke up safely, and the Lord was watching. Oh, that's a fabulous verse. I bet you didn't even know that verse was in the Bible. Oh, I'll talk about that later. And now, although 10,000 enemies surround me, and he's not exaggerating, on every side, I am Wow. I will cry to him, Arise, O Lord. Save me, oh my God. And he will slap them in the face, insulting them and breaking off their teeth. That's a joyous time right there. For salvation comes from God. What joys he gives to to some of his people, to his favored people, to most people, to you if you're a really good boy or girl. What joys he gives to all his people. Great job, you guys. Psalms, as you know, many of them were written by David, not all of them. But they were, Psalms were actually song lyrics. They're poems inspired by God. Matter of fact, this whole book of Psalms is essentially the hymn book of ancient Israel. They would sing them, they would recite them, they would chant them, and many of them continue to be used even today by, in Christian churches like ours, in praise choruses. How many of the songs that we sing and have sung here at Faith Community are just peppered with quotes of verses from the Psalms and the words of the psalmist, in many cases David, like we're considering today? And other worship songs as well. Some of them lifted. The words lifted right off that page of Scripture. So it, 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 they're still so powerful. Part of what makes, and, and some of you that are getting new to, kind of new to this, and you're getting used to hearing these things, you're listening to Caleb, you're listening to something uh, on, a, on, a, on a, a DVD or a CD or with, your, with your, uh, your, your, something you've downloaded, and you're singing along, and you don't maybe even realize it, you're singing Scripture. You're quoting scripture, and much of it's been lifted right out of the Psalms. I think that's a wonderful thing, so keep listening and keep singing. Part of what makes these lyrics such moving songs of worship is they tug at your heartstring. They speak to you personally, and frequently you reflect the problems and pressures of trying to live the way God wants you to live, and then you remember the heartaches that you sometimes encounter along the way. I mean, I don't know too many people in this room who haven't had or aren't going through some heartache in their life. It's just real. It's just, it's just human. It's just who we are. 
It's, we're not going to avoid it or evade it. We're not going to miss it. So in this psalm in particular, David identifies some stages that I call the person of, that, that the person of faith will often go through as he or she is dealing with sin or with guilt or with some hardship or some reversal. In other words, the consequences of life. What are those stages? Well, let me suggest number one is, and we probably all fall right into this one, Despair. Despair. Let me give you the background of this song. Can I do that? Can I give you the history lesson? Just very briefly. I'm not going to get all the details worked in, but just so you know what's happening here. It's a bit complicated, but man, it's very important. So here it is. It goes like this. David's problems began... When he looked over the fence and saw a beautiful woman at her bath and decided she was the one he wanted, even though he was already committed to his wife and partner. So he sleeps with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was one of the inside, the inner circle of the army of, of, of King David at that time. He was a member of what they called the 30. This act of adultery led to an even more despicable act on David's part. If it, if it had ended there, it would have been bad enough. But it didn't end there. Because after a while, so overcome with his guilt, he decided that he would cover that sin up. It's always a very poor choice. So King David sent Uriah, the warrior, to the front line of battle. So he'd die. So now King David has committed adultery and added to that murder. And from this point on, David had to live with the consequences of his sin. And I could stand here till noon hour just telling you the whole list of things and how his, some of his uh, things turned out and what life was like at the end of his life. But anyway, I'm not going to go there. I just want to fast forward a few years and one of David's sons, by the name of Amnon, A-M-N-O-N, became a bit enamored with his uh, half-sister Tamar, and unable to control his lust, he rapes Tamar. Now this enrages Tamar's full brother, his name, you may have heard this name from the Bible, Absalom. Sought, he sought revenge, and he got revenge by killing Amnon. And when David learned about both crimes, what are the two crimes? Rape and murder. Instead of dealing with it in a righteous, just manner, he basically turned his head and ignored the whole situation. Why? Well, because David had committed basically the same crimes. He once lost control of his urges, and he ends up killing an innocent man, and I want to make a statement here that I want every parent to listen to, and every leader, and everybody that has a position of authority. As a result, David had lost the moral authority to deal effectively with his own sons. In time, Absalom became very defiant. Absalom thought he was morally superior and he was a much more worthy leader than his king father. So he amounts a rebellion to take David down. And that rebellion, as strange as it seems, caught David by surprise. So much so, the Bible says, he fled barefoot and weeping. And it's in this context that David writes Psalm 3. Matter of fact, if you have little headings at the head of your psalms, it probably says something like, a psalm of David as he's fleeing from Absalom. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, he brought all his problems on himself. And that's why he says in verses 1 and 2 that you read so eloquently, Oh Lord, so many are against me. So many seek to harm me. I have so many enemies. So many say that God will never help me. Think for a moment of, of the despair here about the shame that David must have felt being attacked and hunted down by his own son. Hey, David was reaping the consequences of the bad choices he'd made, and once known as the, and he's, and he's quoted in the Bible as being the man after God's own heart. Nobody else is defined that way, or described that way. 
David's life is now characterized by failure. It's characterized by loneliness, by disappointment, by heart agony, agony of the soul. And you can lump all that into one word. Consequences. Can you, even a little bit, sympathize with David? Hey, we all make mistakes, don't we? I'm going to say that again, and while I'm saying it, let the righteousness on the parsed lips just fall off while I'm saying that. We all make those mistakes, don't we? It may not be adultery or murder, but we all make mistakes, right? Mm. Yeah. We all do things that come back to bite us or haunt us, right? And even if the struggles you're facing are not the result of your own failures or even your own sin, you still understand the despair that David was feeling. King David was dealing with the rising tide of disloyalty, and he's about ready to give up hope. Victor Frankl once described the dangers of despair, and he wrote this while interred in a Nazi death camp. Frankl wrote this, and I quote, The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. I just think of King David when I read that quote, when I think of that quote. The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. When you get in a situation like that sometimes, that's what you start thinking about is the future. And you start thinking about, well, where can I go from here? What can I do from here? How can I be happy from here? How can I have success from here? How can I move to the next level of life? And I think Ernest Hemingway once summarized his despair, and he had a lot of it by the sounds of it, and he said, and I quote, I live in a vacuum that is as lonely as a radio tube when the batteries are dead and there's no current to plug into. I don't know much about electronics, but that's pretty dead. That's pretty lonely. You see, most of us understand all too well what it's like to feel overwhelmed and to feel hopeless. Have you ever felt like everyone and everything is against you and against what you think, what you feel, what you do, what you say, where you go? Huh? Huh? That's how David is feeling. And if, if, and if that's how you feel right now, I just want to say, do not give up and do not despair. Hey, David, as down and out as he was, still believed that with, and with every fiber of, of his being, he believed this, that God was with him. Thank God for that because it leads me to the really the second stage of what a person might go through dealing with consequences. And that stage, after despair, is desire. Now he's hard-pressed. He has opposition on every hand. Every step he takes is a step of danger. And David confesses his desire for God's intervention. He cries out to him for help. And in verse 3 he said, But you, O Lord, you're a shield around me. You're my glory, the one who holds my head high. Look, I think David's head was bowed low, pretty low in shame. But he knew the one who could lift his head high again. He'd made a mess out of his life. But he knew where to turn. Can I just stop there for a second and say, isn't it comforting to know when you and I make a mess out of life, that's not the end. And there's still someone to whom we can turn. And there is a life that God wants us to have that's available to us. 
by making that turn and acknowledging that one. Isn't that a great thing to, to realize? See, who's, who's going to lift my head? I'm so ashamed, Bob. I'm so ashamed, Pastor. I'm, I'm so ashamed, Counselor. I'm so ashamed, friend. I, and my head is bowed low, and I can't even lift it up enough to look somebody in the eye anymore and talk about this. And here's David, a warrior. He's familiar. He knows what the protection of a shield is against swords and arrows from his enemies. And now his heart's desire and his heart's cry was for God to be his shield. This isn't just loose language here, i got to tell you. He knew that God would hear his prayers. And in verse 4, that phenomenal verse, and you just really, you punched it home for me. He said, I will pray to the Lord and he will answer me from his temple in Jerusalem. Or in another version it says, from his holy mountain. (laughs) He will answer. Isn't that encouraging to know? That when I cry out to the Lord in my moment of despair, and I have a desire in my heart to live according to His will and purpose, and I cry out to Him, He will answer. I'm glad we don't see the word might very much in Scripture, only to describe maybe the power of an army. But we don't hear, I might hear you. I might answer you. Call unto me and... I might listen. Boy, I'm glad those words, that word is not anywhere inscribed in Scripture. And so now his heart's desire is for God to be his shield. And he says, I'm going to pray to the Lord, and he'll answer me from his holy mountain. Now, friend, here, I want you to hear this. Because if all I do is tell you the story of David running from Absalom... And I think I've missed the mark this morning. And there are just two or three little juicy statements that if you don't get anything else but get those, you've come for the right reason and God's going to meet you right where you are. And here it is. What was true for David is also true for you. Doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter who you've been with. Doesn't matter how far you've run. Doesn't matter how fast you've gotten out of the situation or tried to. What was true for King David is also true for you. When your life is in shambles, it feels like everything's falling apart around you. When you've messed up and you've got nowhere else to turn, turn to Jesus. You say, well, that sounds like just a a, a desperation move. Well, you're getting it. We're getting through. When you have nowhere else to turn, turn to Jesus. Yahweh. As someone once said, when life knocks you to your knees, well, that's the best position to be in to pray, isn't it? Say, oh, that, that hit me like a ton of bricks. Man, I went right to my knees. Well, stay there. Stay there. No man is taller. No man is bigger. No man is mightier than when he's on his knees talking to his heavenly father. He will hear you. (laughs) He will answer. That's a promise. Now, here's what the Bible says in 1 John 5. You might want to check this or just write it down. 1 John 5, 14 and 15, John says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us. Whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. According to his will, that's the only condition. So that's how we pray. According to your will, Lord, so be it. Thank you for the new Mercedes. No, uh, according to his will. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? It says anything that you ask, he will grant it. Now, he, he doesn't work by your calendar. No. He's not in the capsule of time, so he doesn't have to worry about when you're going to be home to receive such a blessing or how you're going to act when it comes or what the answer is going to be, whether 
meets all your criteria or not. It's just he actually wants to answer our prayers. And as long as what we're asking for doesn't contradict his purpose and his plan, then he's overjoyed to answer our requests and to grant them. The problem is many Christians don't ever bother to ask. And the Bible speaks to that too. You don't have because you didn't ask. Or when you asked, you asked amiss. You weren't on the right page. See, what we do is we turn prayer into some kind of, I call it the emergency measure. Man, when we're in a hole, when there's a problem, when there's something we can't handle, which did you find out that is about every day? Or when we get to this point, I've always gotten amused by this, uh, when you get to that point where, where you say to the pastor, well, I guess, I've tried everything else. I guess now it wouldn't hurt. I, I guess I ought to pray. So it's a last stance emergency measure. And nothing else has worked. So maybe I could just go to that. They say that would work. Well... If you only pray when you're in trouble, you're in trouble. If you only pray when you have to be forced to pray, you're going to be forced to pray. So pray now. Often we only talk to God about life when we have a problem. Is that, try- is that right or not? Amen. Am I just talking to myself or is anybody else can identify with that? Yeah? And even then, we allow the problem to fester some first. And then we think, well, this could get out of control. But this thing's festering and growing. And real prayer ought to be part of our constant fellowship with God and our worship of God. The Bible says, don't worry about anything. Philippians 4, 6, don't worry about anything. I love that. Instead, pray about everything. And you and I, some of us are worriers, and yet we know this is here. Is and, and Paul says, tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. So don't just pray about some things. Don't just pray about the big things. Don't just pray about the bad things. Don't just pray about the sad things. The Bible clearly teaches, be in prayer about everything and thank him for all he's done. By the way, Paul's writing that from a prison. And he's trying to cheer you up. He's got a job to do, I'll tell you. Certainly if there was ever a man of prayer, it was Martin Luther. Martin Luther once wrote a 40-page letter to his barber, Peter Beskendorf, who asked him, how do I pray? What a question. I'm not going to read all 40 pages, okay? Relax. I just quoted Philippians 4, 6, don't worry about anything. But here's a little excerpt of what he said to that barber. Quote, guard yourself against such false and deceitful thoughts that keep whispering. You ever had these thoughts? Wait a while. In an hour or so, you can pray. First, you've got to finish this or that or something else. Thinking such thoughts, we get away from prayer into other things that hold us and involve us till the prayer of the day comes to nothing. It's a good thing to let prayer be the first business in the morning and the last business in the evening. End of quote. I got to tell you, that's wonderful advice from a man who knew what he was talking about. According to a poll recently done and recently published in the USA Today, nine out of ten adults in America say that they pray. That was astounding for me to see that poll. But it didn't ask, to whom do you pray? Or is it a God you pray to? Or what God? Or who, or what, whatever? Or how? What's your form of prayer? Anything. Just how many pray? Nine out of ten. And that was, it was somewhat encouraging to see that's a, that's a good number. But I want to say, let's make sure that each one of us is part of that nine, okay, out of ten. And, and prayer is an everyday experience. And we're praying to the one God, our God, and, and, and we're 
and we're invoking the name and the power of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're praying in faith, believing, and we're praying on the authority of the word of the living God. Let's make sure we're in that group. After expressing our desire through prayer, we've come now from despair to desire. Then we come to dependence. Difficult topic. Because we encounter various trials in life, and once again, we feel that initial despair. David certainly did. But once we've expressed our desire for God's help, then we have to trust God that he actually is in control, and then depend on him to take care of the issue. Now, here's what the tendency is of so many of us. It's to lay our troubles at the throne of Jesus and to pray earnestly and sincerely, and maybe pray in the morning, but the problem is we'll go back in the afternoon and pick up that issue and try to handle it on our own. I don't know how many times I've seen people say, well, I put that in God's hands. And I said, where is it now? Well, I took it back. It's in my hands now. I said, well, let me just tell you, God's not going to juggle with you. It's in his hands entirely, or it's in yours entirely. And if it's in yours, you're going to have to figure it out, if there's any figuring out to it. But if it's in his, you don't even have to think about it, because he's going to take care of it. Yeah, it doesn't do much good to lay your troubles at the feet of Jesus in the morning and go back and pick them up later that day. (laughs) Now, mighty King David demonstrates amazing surrender and amazing dependence on God in this third psalm. It's amazing, the stuff. He's barefoot. He's on the run. He's in the desert. He's being hunted by his own son, who is ready to usurp the throne and take over the kingdom. Yet, after crying out to God, David says in verse 5, this is staggering to me. He said, then, then I laid down and slept in peace and woke up safely. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But I'd love to ask in a crowd like this, how many of you use sleeping pills, NyQuil, all that, that stuff that makes you sleep or drugs you up so you don't know if you're awake or asleep or where you are. And David said, I laid down and I slept. What? His son is out to kill him. His son is out to take the throne. His son is out to to hunt him down. And after he'd cried out to God and was reassured that God had heard him and would answer him, he said, I lay down and I slept in peace and I woke up safely. Why? For the Lord was watching over me. And now, listen to this when he wakes up, man, he got real brave. And he said, and now, There are 10,000 enemies have me surrounded on every side. I am not afraid. Is that the kind of God you serve? Huh? Are you serving David's God? Are you believing David's God? Wow, that's faith. That's honest to goodness faith. That's what it means to trust in God. That's what it means to depend on God. That's what it means to give it up. That's what it means to know everything's going to work out. No matter what conflicts lay ahead of him, David didn't lose any sleep over the thing. You know what that reminds me of? Of course you don't. Mark chapter 4. If you're a note taker, please write that down. Mark 4. In there we have a story later later on in the chapter. Jesus was in the stern of a boat, asleep on a cushion or a pillow, 
in the middle of a, tro- I mean, a horrendous storm. Terrific storm. It's always intrigued me. I wonder if you've ever noticed this. That was the only time the Bible ever mentions Jesus sleeping. Mark 4. Isn't that something? And he's sleeping where? In a boat. When? In the middle of the night. Conditions? Not a good boating day. Let's just leave it at that. I would say that demonstrates a level of faith and trust (laughs) that is not, like, it's not interrupted by what's going on in the world around us. See, we have these great moments of faith or moments of great faith in our own lives, each of us, at certain times when we, we struggle or battle or go through something, but yet they only last for a little while. They're temporary. And then, boom, something happens around us. We're right back down to square one again. We have to build back up. And then we are looking for that great moment of faith. And then it comes again and so But this is the kind of faith. David said, I laid down and went to sleep and and slept peacefully and woke up and didn't feel in danger. And Mark 4 says, Jesus slept. The others were, what are we going to do? This boat isn't going to make it. We're all going to perish. He doesn't even care. Look, he's, he's in the stern of the boat. He's sleeping. That's the kind of faith. And I'm not pointing my fingers out at you. You notice that? More coming back at me. That is the kind of faith we need. Wouldn't you like to lay your head down and fall fast asleep? And secu- I mean, other, some of you that are still awake, I'm so warm, I know, we're putting you out. Secure in the knowledge that God is in control, and there's nothing to be afraid of, and there's nothing to worry about, and there's nothing to lose sleep over, and there's nothing to get sick over, and there's nothing to just keep worry, 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 worry. Give me a pill for that, too. See, this kind of trust and reliance that I'm talking about does not come naturally. We have to learn to let go. We need have to learn to say, God, take care of this. It's easy to say. Because a lot of times we don't say, here, God, take care of it. We say, here, God, take care of it. Oh, well, you're not doing such a good job. I'll pull that back. We've got to take it in both hands and say, here I am. Take it, take me, take the issue and take care. It's the kind of lesson we can only learn through practice, practicing it. You look back over your life. Go back just for a little bit, just a few years even. Think of some bleak moments. You say, oh, I got some really bleak, bleaker and bleakest moments. But I'm, I'm going to ask you why you sit here looking at me today so scholarly. Didn't God bring you through that? Didn't God work it out? Some of you have gone through a lot in the last week, two weeks, three weeks, this month, since the new year started. I don't know at all, but I know some of you have struggled with some stuff. You hide it well. Not really. Because that's our tendency. Yeah. That's our tendency. That's one of the things I learned, remember? Some people think hiding their weakness is a sign of strength. Wrong. Huh? And you go back and, and, and think about, just, just isolate maybe one thing that, that happened in your life. And, and, and didn't, didn't God bring you through it? And, and didn't he do it on his own time? And he never once had to consult your calendar. Never once had to ask you your schedule. Never once had to borrow your, your, your iPhone to see what you were going to He just did it in his own time. A.W. Tozer once said, it's one of the greatest quotes I know, he said, and I quote, with the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, the wisdom of God to plan it, and the the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? Great, great, great 
great, great statement. Hey, let's read it together. With the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, the wisdom of God to plan it, and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? Once we've learned to depend on God to care for us, then we can start owning some of this triumph that we all care about. Triumph over the trials. Victory over this defeated, defeatist attitude. Joy instead of sorrow. And so I'm going to call that stage the deliverance stage. David brings everything into perspective as he brings this short, this short uh, psalm down to the last few verses. Keep in mind now what's happening in the backdrop here. The marauding soldiers of his son Absalom, the lack of food or shelter, the throne of Israel, the kingdom that, was, that he was anointed for by God. Let me tell you something, folks. You think you're in a problem area that nobody's ever seen. All these things meant nothing to David in light of God's infinite grace and power. If I was a shouting kind of man, I'd go, Woo! But I'd never do that in your presence because, no, no, that'd freak you out. Glory. Sometimes I get a hold of a biblical principle and it just, I'll just say to somebody that's near me, there's one down there and it's coming up, so brace yourself. I don't know how I'm going to act. And I'll just ask forgiveness now because I don't want to break anything. His own life is on the line. He's running like a scared deer. He hasn't any food or shelter. He's barefoot and running for his life. Is he ever stopping to think, man, I'm the king. I'm going to protect the throne of Israel. He's saying, God, this is in your hands. And I am totally and 100% dependent on your grace and your power. Wow. And here's what he says in those last two verses, seven and eight. Arise, one of the, um, one of the versions says, come up, Lord, or rise up, Lord. Rescue me, my God. Ever said that? Ever said that? Oh, God, where are you? Pull me out of this mess. Rescue me. And you hold your hand up just expecting him to grab onto your wrist. Slap all my enemies. I had not said this before, but, you know, I, I'm, some of you know, I'm, I'm a public figure somewhat. And I'm, I, I never have claimed this verse before, but we want to be biblical, right? Yeah. <laughs> Shatter the teeth of the wicked. Why? Because victory comes from you, O Lord. It's not my battle. It's not my victory. It's not my triumph. It's his. May you bless your people, or you bring joy to all your people. Now, the new King James Version says this. I like to bounce around a little bit when I'm seeing something that maybe we haven't caught before. That word salvation... In in New King James Version, it it says, uh, instead of victory comes from you, it's worded, salvation belongs to the Lord. I like that. Whether you use the word victory or you use the word salvation, the Hebrew derivative is ha-Yeshua. Sound familiar? If you've ever heard any Hebrew or any... Transliteration in the, in the Old Testament or as we get into the New? Yeshua is the Hebrew pronunciation of Jesus. So quite literally, here's what he means. There is victory in Jesus. There is salvation in his name. Now David's imagery, I've got I to touch on this in case somebody calls me up short here. 
His imagery of God knocking the teeth out of his enemies reminds me of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. And you can pick it up at verse 54 or just make a note of it, 54 to 57. Here's what he says. Some of you have heard these verses. I've used them many times. Oftentimes we hear them at a committal service at a funeral, but I think they're very usually very misplaced using them there. But anyway, here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, or where, O oh grave, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. By the way, how many have ever heard those or verses, something like that, in some kind of a public service? Okay. There's nothing in this world, really, let, let, let me just finish the, the, that verse. Thanks be to God, because he gives us the victory, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't those phenomenal verses? Oh, yeah, they are. See, here, you, you don't really understand, and I didn't understand those verses until you understand the two greatest fears of mankind. Hum, all, humanity's greatest enemies have always been sin and death. Think about it. Think about it. You say, well, I've been afraid of some things, yeah, but you, you've never thought through or processed or feared anything like sin and its consequences and death. But then Jesus comes along. He came into the picture, hallelujah, and he died on the cross of Calvary for our sins. And he knocked the teeth out of them both, out of sin and out of death. Pulled their stingers right out. Where's your sting now? You don't have a stinger. Jesus took them out. Because of Jesus, we have the final victory. There is nothing in this world that can push us down or hold us back as long as we have Jesus. Because our deliverance and our victory is in him and in him alone. I said it earlier. I might repeat it three or four times in this message, and here we go. I've heard this so many times. We all make mistakes. Yes? We all make mistakes, right? Some of you over here need to teach some of them over here how to get along and how to help pastor get through this. And that you want to get home for lunch today We all make mistakes, right? We all make mistakes, right? Thank you, folks. Natural leadership just came to the forefront. We all sin, right? Whoops. You had to go there, didn't you? We all fall short of God's standard, right? And most of the time, if not all, we have to live with the consequences. And we feel like failures. Failure is not a final word. It's not even a final condition. Our problems are not the last word. Loneliness is not the last word. Guilt and shame are not the last words. Because salvation, hear that verse, belongs to the Lord. There is victory in Jesus. Can you say the word with me? Consequences. Again. Can you say the word with me? Forgiveness. Can you say the word with me? Grace. Again. I love that word. Now, can you say all three of those words? Not at one time, but, you know, one, two, three... Consequences, forgiveness, grace. Wow, wow, wow. I love that. You're doing such a great job. Oh, oh, oh. Consequences. When sin rears its ugly head or you've made a mess of things and you're living with the consequences, say, man, I'm, I'm in despair right now. I'm desperate. That's very natural. Don't run away from that. That'll be your first 
emotion. That'll be your first stage. But then you want to express your desire for God's mercy and grace to kick in. And after you've expressed that desire, you want to depend on Him to see you through this situation or problem or sin or direct consequence, whatever it is. And then you need to trust that He is your deliverer. Remember, you cannot deliver yourself. He is your shield, according to David. He is your glory. He is your hope. Consequences, consequences, consequences. Oh, consequences. Oh, 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 oh. I'm going to challenge you now. If you know what I mean by consequences, you've lived through consequences, or you're living with consequences. Let's start, let's start stepping up to those consequences. Let's take the territory that belongs to us. No more hiding. No more denial. Huh? No more blame. No more escape. But let's start digging out. And if you're in the middle of a mess right now, do not despair. Please do not despair. Reach out. When we stand together in just a moment, all who are able, I want you to let the words of a, of, of, a, of a fairly short song that we're going to play for you, I want that to fill your heart with confidence. I don't, want to leave, I don't want you to leave here today with despair ruling your heart. I want you to leave here with confidence in your heart. I want you to turn your troubles over to Jesus. I want you, if you're not a believer yet, I want you to have that desire to turn everything over to Jesus. And trust Him to save your soul. No matter what your situation is. No matter where you are. No matter how much you think, nobody's ever done this before. Nobody's ever gone here before. Nobody's ever felt this before. Well, yes, Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. And He invites you to experience victory. God invites you to come to His Son and know true victory. Consequences, consequences, consequences. Oh my word, our lives are filled with them, aren't they? But I got an even better word for you. Grace, grace, grace. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's all yours. Grace, 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 and more grace. I wonder if you're able, would you stand with me right now and let this message and song speak to your heart. Thank you so much for being so attentive.